So I was awake at 3.30 this morning. I had a pain in my neck. It was horrific. It was horrible. I'd never had it so bad. And I've received prayer, and it is so much better. So I'm, I'm trusting that by the time I finished, it will be completely gone. Now, I don't have my Bible with me. Well, I do. It's, it's in here. But... I, I write out, no, I've got seven pages here, don't be fra- afraid. Um, I write out all the scriptures. I won't necessarily read them all, but I am so strong in my belief that it's everything I say has got to have its foundation in the Word of God. I am not going to lead anyone astray. I am going to lead you back to the Word of God again and again and again and again. I feel safe there. So I'm going to start with a scripture. Exodus 6, 6 to 8. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land that I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord." And probably you realized this was, uh, Moses was speaking the word of the Lord in uh, Egypt, talking about when he was going to bring the Israelites, set them free, and bring them into the promised land. I mean, what a wonderful promise. A wonderful promise. What do you do when you receive a promise from God? when you hear a promise from God in the word or maybe someone prophesies over you. I tell you what I used to do with the emphasis on used. I used to think, oh, that's nice. And I'd sit back and put my feet up and have a glass of lemonade, actually more likely peppermint tea. And I'd think, oh, thank you. I'll wait and see you do that, God. Let me read another scripture. I really need to, an extra hand here. Um, <laughs> oh, that would be wonderful, and I wouldn't, I can wave and. Perfect, thank you. Hebrews 3, 16 to 19. Actually, I can't stand still, I will come back to that. <laughs> Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Or as the Passion puts it, it is clear that they could not enter into their inheritance. They could not enter into their inheritance 
because they wrapped their hearts in unbelief. What a shock. What a shock. God, God, God gave a promise. You guys, you're going to come out of Egypt. I'm going to do it. And you're going to come into the promised land. You are going to inherit it. I am going to do it. God said it. And they didn't. I I read that this week, and I had no intention of starting here, but I was gobsmacked. I was, I just couldn't get over it. What do you mean? God made a promise, and it didn't happen. That's not right. That's not God. God always keeps his word. But they didn't enter into their inheritance because their hearts were wrapped in unbelief. They didn't enter in. You know what I do now when I I come across a promise in Scripture? I pray into it. I say, God, I want this. I want to walk in this. This is your truth. I receive this. When I I get a prophecy, even if I, I wonder because I know sometimes you get prophecies that are what people wish for you. They're, they're not necessarily the word of the Lord, but I'm going to take them anyway. <laughs> I'll take anything good. If I get something that I don't like, I'll just put it to one side. But anything, and sometimes I'll even hear a prophecy for someone else, and I'll say, I like that, God, I want it. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm going to go for everything that God has for me because I don't want it said of me at the end she didn't possess her inheritance because of unbelief I have a quote this is one of my favorite authors one of my favorite authors because I actually understand him especially his children's books they're a lot easier to understand If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. You should be able to tell by the accent who I'm trying to be. I am English anyway, so... We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We are far too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis. I... uh, I bought The Passion recently. It's a translation, new translation of the Bible. And uh, I love it. Sometimes I love it because of the way it puts it. Sometimes I love it just because it's different to what I've always read. And sometimes if you just keep reading the same words, you, you, they miss. But when you read it differently, 
So my intention this morning was to speak from Psalm 1, is to speak from Psalm 1. That was just my introduction. And if I don't finish, I don't finish. You know, it really doesn't bother me. I, I've read several uh, chapters. I, I've read the Gospels in the New Testament, in the Passion. And I thought, I'm going to read the Psalms because, uh, you know, that's where you get the people's heart expressed. So I started with Psalm 1, and I'm still on Psalm 1. I read the book of Hebrews yesterday, but I'm still on Psalm 1. And it starts, what delight comes to those who follow God's ways? What delight comes to those who follow God's ways? Delight, high degree of pleasure or enjoyment, joy, rapture. You watch a young kid. Um, I have five grandchildren. One of them really loved this kid. He is uh, six now. And... Uh, Wonderful guy, his name's Sam. Christmas, gets a pair of underwear. Very polite young man. Thanks, mum. I like them, puts them down. Gets a book. Oh, oh, that's great. Captain Underpants, love it, thank you. Great. And I can't remember exactly what he got, so I'm making this up. But Star Wars Millennium Falcon! Yes! And he'll go wild and he'll run into his dad's arms, run into... He just cannot control his excitement. I mean, we'd all be the same with a Star Wars Millennium Falcon, I'm sure, but... That is delight. That is expressing delight. I, I came, actually, I came across a better one. And I say better because we're not too excited really about Millennium Falcon. I was reading about, and I'm not going to pronounce it properly, Dostoevsky, whatever his name is, Dostoevsky. Um, this Russian guy who wrote Crime and Punishment. I, I was reading about him, and it was a wonderful story, so of course I have to go back and check it because I don't like bringing stories and say, oh, this is what happened, and then discover, oh, it wasn't exactly like that. So I did lots of research this week, and I discovered some wonderful things. Now, everyone's heard of uh, Tolstoy and Dost Dostoevsky. D and Tolstoy. Anyway, Malcolm Muggeridge, which is probably another person that... Oh, someone's heard of Malcolm Muggeridge. So he used to work for the BBC. Oh, lots of people heard of Malcolm Muggeridge. He worked for the BBC in the 1970s. He discovered that there was a revival happening amongst the Russian intellectual elite. There was a spiritual revival. They were all turning to God. And he, he was, well, how can that be? Why, why would all these, you know, because there's all this brainwashing that was happening at that time. 
and they'd taken away all Christian literature, they'd taken away the Bibles, everything. And there was a Russian dissident who had managed to get to the UK, and uh, he said, the authorities did a very thorough job, but they forgot one thing. They forgot to suppress the works of Tolstoy and Dostoevsky. If I keep saying it differently, one of them will be right. They forgot to suppress these two writers who he said was the most perfect exposition of the Christian faith in modern times. So then I, I, I liked the story that I'd found and I did a bit more research. So Dostoevsky started writing when he was young and everyone liked him. Yay, he's gonna be the next, and I don't know whoever, but they said he was gonna be great. So he went out and partied and got drunk and celebrated and did a lot of stupid things and amongst them he said some things against the Shah. I'm probably saying that wrong too, C-Z-A-R, how do you pronounce that? I don't know, but anyway, he said some things against the Shah, which you don't do, you know, it's wonderful in this country, we can say what we like about our leaders, probably shouldn't, but we can. And uh, anyway, so he got thrown in prison. And when he was in prison, uh, the group of dissidents, they were taken somewhere, someone stood up and the judgment was that they were gonna be shot by firing squad. They have these white gowns that they put on. They go and stand against the, the wall and they wait for that final sound. They've got blindfolds so they can't see and instead they hear this galloping of a horse. Someone stops and says, the Shah has decided to, to stop the execution and instead you're gonna get uh, 10 years hard labor. So they were really excited at that. It was all a setup. They didn't know, of course. And this really touched Dostoevsky. He was like, oh, I'm going to be different now. I'm going to be different. Uh, anyway, so then he's taken and he is put into uh, Siberia for a camp. On his way there, he travels, I think, eight days and three women meet the dissidents as they arrive in Siberia. These are wives of dissidents that are already in prison and they're living there with the hope of helping the new people coming. And one of them gives Dostoevsky a New Testament. The only book that is allowed into the prison camp. So he reads it back to front and front to back. And after eight years, he comes out and this is what he said. He wrote to the, the woman, to believe that there is nothing more beautiful, more profound, more sympathetic, more reasonable, more manly and more perfect than Christ. And not only is there nothing, but I tell myself with jealous love that there can be nothing. 
Besides, if anyone proved to me that Christ was outside the truth, and it really was so that the truth was outside Christ, then I would prefer to remain with Christ than with the truth. He left prison full of delight because he knew the Lord. The rest of his story is not so good, but his books apparently, I mean, I read the first three pages of Crime and Punishment. I thought three pages was actually quite good at the time. I mean, it was in English, I can't, but... Um, but that was delight. He found Jesus in prison. What delight comes to those who follow God's ways. They won't walk in step with the wicked, nor share the sinner's way, nor be found sitting in the scorner's seat. So I read that, and of course, I always ask questions when I, I, I read that. And I said, well, who are the wicked? Who are these sinners that I, I'm not going to walk with? And, and one of the, the most important things that I've discovered as a Christian is how important it is for me to declare the truth about myself. Uh, I was at a, um, a mass, this was uh, quite a few years ago, and the priest talked about a, a rabbi who had this brilliant idea. He had two pieces of paper, and on one of them it said, I came from the dust, I'm going to the dust. And he had that in one pocket. And then on the other one it said, for me the world was made. And there is that balance that we have to keep. And, and I loved that, I had it in my pocket, my jeans for a long time, until I forgot to take it out once. Then they came back really but I, I realized when I did that, the one that I took out the most often, the one that I needed to remind myself of the most often, was for me the world was made. You know, when I was a teenager, maybe I would have taken the other one out more because I knew everything when I was a teenager. But as I got older, I realized I didn't know much and I felt like every year I knew less and less. And, and we all struggle with that. Am I, am I a person of value? And the, the, the thing I, I came to realize as I was looking at this, if I see myself as a sinner, just as a sinner who's forgiven, is that going to hinder me from coming into all that God has for me? I mean, forgiveness is wonderful. There's no way I could even begin to downplay forgiveness. So powerful. But if that's where we stop, we do not walk in all that God has for us. And in Psalm 1.1, it says not to share the sinner's way and not to stand. In NIV, it says, don't stand in the way that sinners take. Well, if I'm a sinner, that's kind of difficult. So I realize the scripture is saying, and I, this is where I'm going to get a lot more scriptures for you, I am not a sinner. 
I am a saint. Romans 6, 17, 18. And God is pleased with you. Anyone hear that from God? God is pleased with you. Oh, so often we, we think the opposite. How could God like me? I'm such a failure. But God is pleased with you. Write it up and put it on your mirror. For in the past you were servants of sin, but now... Your obedience is a heart deep is heart deep and your life is being molded by truth through the teaching you are devoted to. And now you celebrate your freedom from your former master, sin. You've left its bondage, and now God's perfect righteousness holds power over you as his loving servants. That was the passion. NIV says, Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you've come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. And the truth is, we act out of what we believe about ourselves. I was thinking about this last week. Um, it's... I teach at Conestoga and it's coming up to the end and some students are realizing that uh, maybe they should have worked a bit harder. And I had one student who came to me who basically was trying to bully me, saying that he deserved a better mark for an assignment he'd done. But the situation is I am very confident in my role as a professor. I know what I'm teaching. I know that I'm fair, and I know that I'd given him what he deserved. Now, I, I do encourage my students to come if they think I've made a mistake, because I do make mistakes. I don't encourage them to swear at me or yell at me or, or any of that, which is what this guy was doing. But I was not put off. I was not to be bullied because I was confident in my position. And that is so important in our walk with the Lord. We need to be confident in our position because there is one who will come and bully you. There is one who say, God is pleased with you, I don't think so. And you can say liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11, surely you must know that people who practice evil cannot possess God's kingdom realm. Stop being deceived. People who continue to engage in sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, sexual perversion, homosexuality, fraud, greed, drunkenness, verbal abuse, or extortion, these will not inherit God's kingdom. It's true that some of you once lived in these lifestyles, but now, but now you have been purified from sin, made holy and given a perfect standing before God, all because of the power of the name of the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, and through our union with the Spirit of God. You were a sinner. If you've been born again, you are now a saint. Now, I'm not saying that I never sin. 
1 John 1, 8 to 10 makes that very clear. If we boast that we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and are strangers to the truth. But if we freely admit our sins when his light uncovers them, he will be faithful to forgive us every time. God is just to forgive us our sins because of Christ, and he will continue to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we're not guilty of sin when God uncovers it with his light, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So I'm not saying I don't sin, we don't sin, neither am I saying that we're about to take over and rule the world, well, not yet anyway. What I am saying is when the Spirit nudges you to go and offer to pray for a non-Christian friend, you don't say, oh, I can't do that. Oh, look at me, I'm not a good enough person. You say, yes, Lord, because I'm a saint, not a sinner. And you expect God to use you when you pray for others. You expect it not because you're anything special, but because he is, and he has made you a saint. I had a friend one time, she was sharing with me, this was back in London, and uh, she said one time, she said to the Lord, God, you can't use me, I'm just a worm. And she opened her Bible to uh, Jonah, and the first thing she read was, and God appointed a worm. Am I lining myself with, up with the scripture? Or what others think, what I think? I cannot, I cannot identify myself as under the power of sin. Romans 6, 6. Could it be any, sorry, could it be any clearer? I love that. Could it be any clearer that our former identity is now and forever deprived of its power. For if we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we could not continue to live, we were co-crucified with him to dismantle the stronghold of sin within us so that we could not continue to live one moment longer submitted to sin's power. I, I love the book of Corinthians. This is how Paul opens his letter to the Corinthians. From Paul, divinely appointed according to the plan of God to be an apostle of the anointed one, Jesus. Our fellow believer, Sothenes, joins me in writing you this letter addressed to the community of God throughout the city of Corinth. For you have been made pure set apart in the anointed one, Jesus, and God has invited you to be his devoted and holy people, and not only you, but everyone everywhere who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus as their Lord and ours also. I like it because the first letter to the Corinthians is not a letter of congratulations. Hey guys, doing well. You have done so well as Christians in Corinth. I am so pleased with you. Not. The letter to the Corinthians, what is it? Chapter 5, Paul reprimands them for immorality in the church that they weren't doing anything about. Chapter 6, 
They are reprimanded for having lawsuits against unbelievers. Verse 1 and 2, chapter 6. Furthermore, how dare you take a fellow believer to court? It's wrong to drag him before the unrighteous to settle a legal dispute. Isn't it better to take him before God's holy believers to settle the matter? Don't you realize that we, the holy ones, will judge the universe? If the unbelieving world is under your jurisdiction, you should be fully competent to settle these trivial lawsuits among yourselves. Now, who are the unrighteous here? It's wrong to drag him before the unrighteous. Oh, the judge. The judges. And who are the righteous? The holy ones? Believers. That is the distinction that Paul makes. The unrighteous are the unbelievers. The righteous are the believers. So I am a saint, not because I give to the poor, not because I try to be honest and because I try to be nice to everyone, but because of what Jesus did. And, and what is really interesting for me is we love that for ourselves, often not so much for others. I was with a, a friend the other day and uh, she was complaining she said, it's not fair. And he said, what are you talking about? The thief on the cross, all he had to do, I mean, he was on that cross because he'd stolen, been done really bad things, and all he had to say was, oh, Jesus, remember me, and vump, he's in. And she said, it's not fair, it's not fair. In, in a world that's ruled by law, grace is a contradiction. We want fairness. And the Gospels give us an innocent man nailed to a cross saying, Father, forgive them. We want respectability. And the Gospels elevate tax collectors, prodigals, Samaritans, we want success, and the Gospels turn it upside down. And they put the poor and downtrodden on the top and the wealthy and the famous on the bottom. You know, perhaps the greatest distinction, distinctive for the Christian faith is grace, which we love for ourselves. We need to learn to love it for others too. Okay, Psalm 1, that's where I was. Choose the truth, hold to it, believe it, and you will be delighted. Choose the truth, declare the truth, believe the truth. Verse 2, their pleasure and passion is remaining true to the word of I am. Meditating day and night is his true revelation of light. Don't let anything except the truth of God's word dictate what you should be believing. 
Don't let anything except the truth of God's word dictate what you should be believing. And I'm going to skip that bit and go down here because one of the things, you know, it's great to say I'm a saint. One of the most important things is I need to remember, we need to remember, what did it cost for this to happen? What did it cost? I go back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 3. And the Israelites were told to take a lamb, one year old, take it into your family, live with it, a lamb without blemish, live with it. So your kids, apparently, I mean, I've never done it, but a lamb is very much like a puppy. So you've got this puppy lamb that's going to sleep with you and your kids for four days. You're going to love this lamb. It's soft and cuddly and nuzzles up. And then four days later, you're going to slit its throat, catch the blood, put some on the door. And the message is sin costs something. Sin costs something. One of the, the, the better things of that story, because I, I hate the idea of having a puppy and slitting its throat four days later. One of the better things of that story is the lamb doesn't know it's coming. So the lamb has four wonderful days with your family, your kids loving on it, cuddling it, and then it's dead. Jesus, on the other hand, John 1, 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus knew what was coming. And if we leap forward to when he went to Jerusalem, Matthew 26, after Jesus had completed his teaching, he said to the disciples, you know that the feast of the Passover begins in two more days. That's when the Son of Man is to be betrayed and handed over to be crucified. Two days. He knew what's coming. I know what I would have done. I would have hightailed it out of there. He knew what was coming. And yet he still moved towards it. And he didn't want to suffer. Verse 39, going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He did not want to suffer, but he did want more than anything else, the will of God. And it is so important, so important that we remember this. We should not be willing to live any less than a victorious Christian life. Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for it. Jesus paid for us. We need to live 
all that he has provided for us. All that he has provided for us. And I, I was meditating through Matthew 26 and realizing again that when we celebrate communion and we use these words, uh, Jesus took bread and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and gave to his disciples, take and eat, this is my body. He knew what was about to come. He knew what was about to happen. And we need to choose not to belittle anything that Jesus has done for us. To be willing, to be obedient, to walk with him, choose him, to choose victory. Yes, I am a saint, and I will walk in that. And I, I had more to say, but I'm not going to say it. I want to give time for ministry, but I will tell a story, because I do love stories. There was a beggar man in India. And he'd go out every day with his little bowl begging. And he had gone out one day and he'd begged all day. Well, it was sometime in the afternoon, it was hot, and he looked down. And he had got seven grains of rice. That's what he'd got for begging all that time. And he was there and he, he looked up as he was sitting there begging and he saw in the distance there was someone coming. He could see the sand. The sand, there was like a cloud on the sand. Someone was coming. And he just waited there and they came closer and closer and it was a, a whole train of elephants and wow, so many people. And then he saw towards the back, coming towards him, a white elephant. Someone really important was on that elephant. And he just sat there and watched. And eventually that white elephant was almost in front of him and the Rajah was on that elephant. And as the Raja was about to pass, he held up his hand and everyone stopped. The whole train of elephants stopped right there in front of the beggar man. The Raja commanded his elephant to go down. The elephant went down on his knees and the Rajah climbed off the elephant. The Rajah walked towards the beggar man. The beggar man's sitting there. He's shaking. He is, whoa, what's happening? Whoa. And the Rajah walks right up to the beggar man. He's standing there right in front of him. And the beggar man standing there shaking. And the Rajah speaks. And he says, Beggar man, 
give me some of your rice. And the beggar man just shakes, doesn't do a thing. He just stands there, sorry, sits there and he's, he's shaking and he's shaking. The Raja speaks again. Beggar man, give me some of your rice. The beggar man's shaking, but he knows the Raja's waiting for his rice. Why would he want his rice? But he's going to obey. Of course, he's going to obey. This is the Raja. So he reaches into his bowl. Seven grains of rice he's got. He picks out four grains of rice and he puts them in the Raja's hand. The Raja takes them, doesn't say anything more. He turns around, walks back to his elephant, climbs on his elephant, commands his, his, the whole train to move. And slowly they move into the distance. The beggar man, he's sitting there and he's shaking. And he doesn't do anything until the dust has settled and the Raja and the whole train of elephants have disappeared into the desert. Then he looks down into his bowl. And in his bowl are three grains of rice and four nuggets of gold. And do you know what he said? He said, if only I'd given him more. 